For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up. Commemorating the Powell Expedition 150 years later, author Jesse Sensabar shares signs of life and death along the highways of the Southwest. Who are the kindred, and how are they reaching out to the Tucson community? And visit Rolly's Mexican Patio for a taste of homegrown cuisine. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. One hundred and fifty years ago, John Wesley Powell and a small team of men embarked on what would become one of the most daring expeditions of its time, a trip on the Colorado River through the majesty of the Grand Canyon. Today, a grassroots group would like to build a museum to celebrate that journey and others that followed. But the National Park Service is putting those plans on hold. From KJZZ's Fronteras desk in Flagstaff, Laurel Morales reports. If they're not on the water, boatmen love nothing more than to sit around a fire and talk boats. So on this cold November morning, that's exactly what I did with longtime river guide Brad Dimmick. He rows boats, builds them, and writes about them. The story of river running in the United States, Grand Canyon is a huge part of that. We sit around the wood stove of Dimmick's dusty boat shop. It goes way back to 1869 and a lot of the techniques and types of boats really were pioneered here in the Southwest. It's just remarkable that we have so many of the seminal boats of this story. Those are the boats, Dimmick says, that belong in a museum. A coalition of boat lovers has proposed an $11 million project in Grand Canyon Village that would tell the tale of river exploration in the West. One style I haven't built, I've run one, is the Powell boat which is a very sophisticated boat. It's a East Coast Whitehall pulling boat. Beautiful curved belly you can see on this model. Long keel strip that goes end to end. And they're very, very fast. They won all the rowboat competitions in their day. And Powell thought, well, that'll be a great boat. Well, they're not for whitewater. Because, Dimmick says, they don't turn quickly and they crash into the rocks. Upstairs, Dimmick shows me the collection of boats he's built, many of them replicas of historic boats. River-running pioneer Norman Nevels was the first to take commercial passengers through the Grand Canyon in the 1930s. Dimmick says his was a very wet boat to row. For some reason, Nevels did not make the ends tall enough to go over the waves, so they go under a lot of the waves. And uh, they don't have room for passengers, which is awkward because they were running commercial passenger trips. So people would sort of cling to them and, and get down the river. At the south rim of the Grand Canyon, collections curator Kim Beeson peels back the plastic cover from the real Neville's boat Dimmick modeled his after. To take passengers on these trips, you can see there's not a lot of room. So they're, you know, one boat meant to about no more than three, three passengers per boat. Pretty, pretty neat collection. Yeah, absolutely. 
The two dozen or so boats, some of them more than a century old, sit like ghosts under red sheets and plastic in a warehouse. There's no sign announcing that the historic boats are inside, and you'd have to make an appointment to go in and see them. Fifteen years ago, the park displayed the boats outside the visitor center until boatmen like Dimmick complained that they shouldn't be exposed to the elements. So the park spent thousands of dollars to hire conservators. We had conservators come up and, and clean the boats and stabilize them. Uh -huh. In the warehouse next door, the Park Service keeps some of its smaller artifacts, like the only known remnant of a John Wesley Powell boat. The Nellie Powell from the second expedition, um, it's got burn marks around the edge because they wintered over at least Ferry. In the 30s, somebody was clearing out that field by burning it, and at some point somebody said, wait, oh, isn't that one of Powell's boats? Boat Museum proponent Gaylord Stavely owns Canyoneers, a commercial river trip outfitter. He worries historic boats are doomed to the same fate. Years ago, there was a boat called the Ohio that went down the river. It was donated to the park. It ended up being either crushed or burned in the landfill. Mm. That's what happens to these eventually, if they're just not seen. But Grand Canyon National Park spokeswoman Janet Balsam says the boats are safe. The 1920s stone building proposed to house the museum needs a lot of work. They need a lot of modifications, and we simply don't have the, the money for the, the building rehabilitation or operations cost to develop it at this point in time. doesn't mean we're not going to. The boat lovers propose raising the $11 million themselves, but they still need permission from the Park Service to build the display. So for now, to see these historic boats all together, you'll have to settle for an online virtual museum. I'm Laura Morales in Flagstaff. Thirtieth of September, twenty seventeen, Nevada Smith Saloon. Last days of September, spitting blood in the changing barrio. Old shrines recycled into retaining walls for the zeroscaped yards of the ironically hip and upwardly mobile. Infield is here and now, wandering to the hoodoos on I ten documenting the passing shrines with a dust-covered thing. We pick apples, pears, pumpkins, and sunflowers. In Nevada Smith's saloon, tucked into the trailer parks on the Miracle Mile, where the whiskey is cash only, and they take their karaoke seriously. Prime rib or prime rib, no need for menus here. There's an old mechanical cigarette machine taking quarters by the door. Another sign of another passing time. It doesn't stand still. I would not want it to. But in the last hours of September, here in the neon desert, it almost sounds like a good idea. Jesse Sensibar has intimately learned the lay of the land in the Southwest by riding it mile after mile, often in the cab of a tow truck, which he drove for more than 30 years. Sensibar's eyes have often been drawn to the crosses, shrines, and places of remembrance that dot the highway landscape. Eventually, he began documenting these places, taking photos, recording the names, and sharing his thoughts on Facebook. Now he has a published collection called Blood in the Asphalt, Prayers from the Highway, written to commemorate those who never made it to their destination. I started towing pretty much right out of high school. I think probably the first time I hopped in a tow truck, I was maybe 19 years old. I started towing on the 
on the south side of Chicago. I, I worked for a lady who had a had a garage, and when it became apparent that I wasn't going to ever be the world's greatest mechanic, she bought a tow truck and stuck me in it. <laughs> uh, but away I went, and uh, and I've been towing off and on ever since. It's the thing I've always come back to, and and you know, and I, and I like it. It's it's it it has the potential to be incredibly mundane and boring, but it also has the the potential at any moment in time to get very exciting. And just that potential was always enough to keep me, uh, you know, keep me interested, even when when nothing exciting did happen. Here in Arizona, where there's all this empty space and the weather can be so hostile to life that it seemed to me that there was a good chance that your career as a tow truck driver had been a recurring play of someone getting in above their head, you getting the call, you going to find them, and then this amazing gratitude from these people who were probably scared to death until you showed up to save them. How often would you say that that was the template for what you experienced? Occasionally, but, um, but not nearly as much as you might think. Well, man, I would think there would be so many people who'd be out there who'd have maybe, you know, this tiny amount of water with them and nothing else, and they would just be thinking, this might be it. I I think I see buzzards. (laughs) Yeah, and that does happen occasionally, and we keep water in all the trucks, and and, uh, in the winter we make sure there are blankets in all the trucks, especially up north. Some people are are really happy to see us in some situations. But um, it's not a job where you get shown a lot of love. That's it's, interesting. It's really, it's really not. It's one of the things that you know that that sort of that burns you out on it after a while, or burned me out on on it after a while was um, was that I really began to feel not liked. Do you think that you look at Arizona a little bit differently based on the number of hours you've logged behind the wheel? Yeah, I think so. One of the reasons this book exists is because I'm unafraid to to whip over onto the side of the highway and, and hop out and look at these shrines. You know, I'm real comfortable working on the shoulder of the road. I've spent my whole life on the shoulder of the road. It's not a um, safe or comfortable place for most people. And I didn't even really know that until fairly recently when people are like, wow, it's really cool. You know, I always drive by and see those things, but I never, I never stop. And I'm like, well, why don't you stop? Well, they're on the side of the highway. I'm like, yeah, and they're like, well, it's you know, it's just not a, not a place you want to be. And I, you know, I sort of never thought of that because I spent my life working on it. But it's it's certainly given me an appreciation for this state and especially um, some of the lesser known places in this state. I remember when I discovered Navajo Mountain, for example, um, which you know at that time wasn't even on any maps. I was like, wow, if this place wasn't on the wasn't on a reservation, you know, it would be a it would be a national monument. What sorts of things do you often find at the shrines? Uh, I mean, we see the white crosses from the road maybe as we're going by, but we don't often get a chance to see what might be at the base of that cross, what might people have left there. You'll find offerings to the spirit on its journey. Um, Food and water or food and Gatorade are not uncommon. A lot of religious memorabilia, sometimes bottles of whiskey, a couple of joints. You know, I found little baggies of of heroin and cocaine uh you find all kinds of little but they also find you know stuffed animals children's toys graduation ribbons photographs uh you know nicely framed photographs to you know things just stuck up there 
There's a really small entry in your book here. It says, 27 August 2017, Dudleyville, Arizona Highway 77, southbound at mile 132, a fallen cross for Joseph Paul. You wrote, I'm tempted to put it back up, but I don't want to interfere. Why do you think you had the reaction that you may have had to that particular situation? It just seemed like in that space that I shouldn't put that cross back up, you know. Um, that 77 road has a huge number of memorials along it. Um, and and it just, it just, you know, it was, it was tempting, but I, it, it just, it just didn't seem like the right thing to do, so I didn't do it. 24th of May, 2016. More cartoon shrines to El Chilongo down on the south side of the borderlands at the edge of the big truck economic zone. Takes so long for the commercial truck traffic to cross, it's no wonder the passing of time feels like death to Mexican transport drivers. It's funny to me how, despite the wall and the heavy security, things still look much the same on both sides of the border town of Nogales. At the 21 kilometer edge of the zone, returning my temporary import permit for my truck, my nephew was riding shotgun and I stopped to show him these shrines. We picked up a 300 peso statue of the Virgin of Guadalupe for a friend, worked our way back across the border, a few miles stretching to ours. Then to Tucson, where, floating, we watched a peregrine falcon in the big mesquite beside the pool until we made him nervous, and he flew off with his dinner clutched in his talons. Jesse Sensabar's collection of essays and photos is called Blood in the Asphalt, Prayers from the Highway, published by Tolson Books. Octavia Butler was an award-winning novelist and MacArthur Fellow who became the first black woman to join the ranks of America's great science fiction authors. She led the way for many who followed. Butler's writing is characterized by her boundless imagination and hope, tempered with a deep understanding of the societal constructs and gender and racial politics that she lived through in the latter half of the 20th century. One Book, One Community is a literacy initiative for 2019 that's being presented by The Kindred, a new aspect of the Pima County Public Library. They're sharing copies of Octavia Butler's book, Parable of the Sower, for free, with a mission for Tucson to read, discuss, and share its message. Next, Tanisha Phillips of The Kindred joins me to tell us more. I am the manager of the Sawarita Library, and that's one of 26 branches in our Pima County Public Library system. I am also the lead or the chair of the Kindred team. So that team came to fruition about a year ago. I'm one of less than 20 black employees in the Pima County Library system, and we formed this team as a way to support each other, but also to reach and support and celebrate the black community in Tucson. And this One Book, One Community is one of the projects that our team has come up with for the 2019 year. PBS fans and NPR listeners are just coming off The Great American Read, which was a really interesting project to try to find what could be the most loved book in America. Mm -hmm. I think that these community reading projects are really exciting. 
And I envy people who have the time and the schedule that allows them to participate in a small reading group. How is One Community, One Book going to be fostering the ability for our friends and neighbors in Tucson to talk to each other? So we are going to have multiple in-person conversations at multiple branches. We will also be having um, an online conversation on Twitter. Um, And we're hoping for maybe something on Facebook. We haven't quite nailed that down yet. But um, I, like you, would love to have the time to sit down and read and just, you know, indulge in all of the books that are available to all of us. But I just don't have the time. That's not that's not the reality of my life. So part of our goal with this project is to have conversations and to take the book in chunks. And that might make it easier for folks who might feel overwhelmed, one, by the content, but also by real life. I personally don't participate in book clubs because I might start a book and then I don't finish it in time for the conversation that's going to take place. So our goal is if you're ready and you finish the book by a particular date, then you can participate in the conversation that's scheduled. If not, we are going to have multiple um, dates and times where if you've read, let's say, up to chapter four, come join us. Let's talk about chapters one through four and then we'll tackle chapters five through whatever in our next conversation no spoilers no spoilers um and so that's the idea um that you get to enjoy the book at your own pace but not feel overwhelmed um right now our focus is doing the parable of the sower we're celebrating the 25th anniversary of that and so that's the book that we'll be focusing on for 2019 can you share with us any of the reasons why Octavia Butler might have been chosen to start this series? Was there anything about her as an author or her themes that appealed to the Kendred team? Well, part of our name came from um, Octavia Butler and her... The Kendred uh, series. Kindred series. Um, but also, if you think about the uh, definition of Kindred, so that's also where our, our name came from. But we were also talking about how do we celebrate black authors How do we, as the Kindred team, and we as the library system, how do we help people discover these authors that they may not have ever thought of or given a second glance to? You know, even if you're like me, I read in my rut. I like mystery. Right. Right? And so when someone says, oh, this is science fiction, I might be turned off. And so how do we get folks to think outside of their box, read outside of their box. And that was part of it. And the timing was just beautiful, that it was the 20th anniversary of this particular title and that members of our team had read this book and had felt this deep connection and could encourage those of us in the team who had not read it to support this idea of let's celebrate this title and let's get the community behind this particular title. And starting on December 9th, you're making it really easy for people to get involved super easy because you don't even have to check this book out and worry about returning it tell us about that if you are interested you can check out the book from the library system but we as the kindred team um, are providing copies to the community while supplies last at eight different branches in our library system so you can get a book and a study guide that's yours to keep you can add that to your library or even start your own library with that particular copy and so that's that's our hope is that um, if you don't have a library of your own this would be the one book that would help you get that started what age group is this octavia butler reading project one community one book aimed at uh, i would say teens and adults um, there is some heavy material in there in in the book i've been told i'm waiting to read it with the community like i said Speak to me for a moment about what you think it means to read the work of a woman who broke 
gender and racial barriers so magnificently. I'm sorry, I'm rubbing my arm because I have goosebumps, so I'll, I'll tell a quick story. Uh, my brother lives in L.A., and I went to visit him in May, and my friend took me to Huntington Library in Pasadena. The reason she took me was because they had on exhibit a piece of Octavia's work. And the work is a lined piece of college-rolled notebook paper that she typed with a typewriter. And then you can see her edits in pencil and also in pen. So she had gone back. And I stood there, and I just, I am getting goosebumps thinking about it. I just had this moment where I thought, how amazing is this to have this connection to this woman who has helped our team um, have a name, and in a name there is power, but also did all of these really amazing things and in a way was unable to experience kind of the fame and the the acknowledgement because she passed away too soon. And mm-hmm. and so to be able to do this project and be, be able to share her work with those who may not have experienced it is, is a really amazing thing. And, and that's the beauty, one, of being a librarian, but that's also the beauty of books and reading is that you get to experience world and, and points of view and, and all of these other things that you may not have otherwise. My guest was Tanisha Phillips, a member of the Kindred at the Pima County Public Library. While supplies last, you can get a free copy of Octavia Butler's The Parable of the Sower with a study guide at eight different libraries in Tucson through December 16th. The Kindred offer resources and reading suggestions for all ages on the library.pima.gov website. Rolly's Mexican Patio has been open for business less than a year, and it's already getting attention as a homegrown addition to one of Tucson's best food corridors along South 12th Avenue. Chef and owner Mateo Otero uses classic Sonoran-style recipes with a modern twist, as we'll hear next. Last May, I was looking for a building like Northwest Side, Marana. and it wasn't happening. So I called a real estate buddy of mine. Two days later, he, he found me a kitchen. Pulled up, I wasn't too impressed by the building right away. But as soon as I walked in the doors of the patio, I was like, hey, cool. I can make a patio concept. You wouldn't see my vision here until I opened up. People are, you got a donkey. Nothing's making sense. I go, just wait till I open and you'll see. And the day I opened, everybody's like, oh, now we see. Now we know that you're not crazy. Because everyone knows I am crazy. So our specialty over here is our roll tacos. That's where the name Rollies came from, for roll tacos. You can get them in chicken, beef, or cauliflower. You can get it with the queso sauce or rojo sauce. So our drowning flautas here. With the cheese sauce, it's topped with green chili, cotija cheese, green onion, and sour cream. And this is a Rollies beef queso. Literally got this restaurant open in three weeks. I didn't think it was gonna pick up as fast as it did. As soon as we opened the doors, it was been full speed. I'm from Tucson, Arizona. 
I was born and raised here. I actually went to school right down the street, right here in Tuatanajo, a captain school, St. John's. When my grandparents moved from Mexico, they moved from Hermosillo, Sonora. The first house my tata bought was right here on Tualatin, Ohio. This is exactly where the restaurant's at. So I feel like it was meant to be right here. These are ground beef patty tacos. We call them nanos tacos here. And this is a Tuesday special we do here every Tuesday. Basically, it's a ground beef, a little oregano, salt and garlic, cotija cheese, and peas. This is it right here. These ones are missing the peas. They said no peas. If you're from Tucson, you were raised on these. If you came from, uh, you know, a Chicano family. I was in a program, it was called Instant Program for a high school kid. At 14, I was getting a paycheck already, cooking at different restaurants in the Studio Union. And then I started busting studs at a Tucson Mall back in the days called Luby's. It was a, like a cafeteria, like a first cafeteria type deal inside the mall. And I was the big time pot washer there. When I got out of culinary school, I started a catering business. So I started catering, I did it 13 years. People would say, hey, you need to open up your own business already. And I, you know, knowing it's a hard business, I really didn't want to. I didn't want to do the whole food truck thing. So I thought this was perfect. This was like in between a food truck and a restaurant. It's like right in the middle. We have a specials on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And today's special is a carne asada baker wrap torta. which has caramelized onions, roasted green chili, it's molded with uh, mozzarella cheese, and then it's stuffed in a baker wrap torta, then finished with sliced avocado and our signature roly sauce. I feel like I thought outside the box, but not way outside the box. These are old, old Sonoran Tucson recipes, Chicano food, you would call it, Mexican-American food with a modern twist to it but I still keep my sauces and everything really authentic, but I just throw a little twist. I'm gonna just say it's Sonoran new style Tucson food. That visit to Rollies was produced by Andrew Brown. You can see the story you just heard by visiting the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. The show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.